0: Open your Bibles to John chapter 14, page 525, if you have the blue Bibles for the church. John chapter 14. These chapters record the final night of our Lord Jesus Christ before he went to the cross. It begins in chapter 13. Chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 describe the final night of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in the upper room at this time. And at the end of chapter 14, he is going to leave. But right now, he's in the upper room with 11 disciples. Judas left in chapter 13. And in these chapters, we have an extended treatment of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ explaining what you and I need to know if he is not here. What would you need to know if the Son of God was with you, but he was about to leave? The answer is, you would need to know John chapter 13, and then again to chapter 14 and 15, 16 and 17. You would need to know that. And on what authority can I say that? Because that's what he told His disciples before he died. Now, these chapters are remarkable. If you've been with us over the last months, we began in January in chapter 13. And we discovered in chapter 13 our Lord Jesus does what is most shocking and most memorable outside of the cross of Christ. He bowed down and washed the feet of 11 men, dirty feet. And by that, he taught us, if you would be a Christian, you must humble yourself. There's no other option. He doesn't take proud people. Only the humble, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so by teaching us humility, he goes on in chapter 13 and then teaches us Not only must you begin at the door with humility, but you must go on by constantly confessing your sin. There is a false teaching that is going all around the world. And the false teaching is this. You can come to a service like this. Let's say you're a 15 year old boy in the back. And you say to yourself, now I want to be a Christian. Wow, that pastor was shouting and preaching. You and my whole, I thought, I felt I need to become a Christian. And then when he closed in prayer, I said, oh, Jesus, save me. There is a false teaching that says that's enough. We've got to set the record straight. You must enter through humility, but it must come every day, which is what Jesus taught in chapter 13, just after washing their feet. And then he taught us about hypocrites with Judas. Judas was a hypocrite. And he taught them, hypocrites are all around us and they're tricky. You can't tell who they are. Lord, is it I? Is it me? It's who? I don't know who it is. And then we saw in chapter 13 that there's a new law that he gives to his people. It's the law to love one another. New? How is that new? It's new in two ways. Do you remember? It's new because it was given to the church. Love one another. Christians love Christians. I don't tire of telling you that if you are born again, I am closer with you than I am with some in my own family who are not yet born again. When you are born again, you enter a new family and you take a new surname. And you are now not so close with those of your own people group. For example, you're a Sutu grandmother. But if you are converted alongside with a 14-year-old Afrikaans boy, you are tighter now with that relationship than you are with your own family members who are outside of Christ. That's what he means when he says, love one another. But then he goes further. In chapter 13, he closes with Peter. Peter says, I will die for you. And Jesus says, Oh, you don't know your own self. And we warned each of you a month or so ago when we went, dealt with that passage do not trick yourself. We are a tricky group of people. And we all want to say, Oh, yeah, I'm the good one, he's the bad one. But the reality is, I'm the bad one, and he's the bad one. That's the reality. And that's the end of chapter 13. Then, chapter 14, we saw believe in Christ. And all those who believe in Christ will ask the Father for greater works. And so today we arrive at verse 15. And that's the introduction that sets the stage for verse 15. And really, verse 15 summarizes the whole message, even though I'll be dealing with verses 15 to verse 26. Let's read that verse again. Look at John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. There is in the simple phrase a judgment. And then there are two terms love and keep. Right there is the message. So if you're taking notes or if you like to have an orderly map to follow, that's the way I like to listen to things. If you like to listen to things that way, then you can follow it easily. Right there in that verse, if you love me, keep my commandments. There's a judgment, there's a loving, there's a keeping. Or if you want to see the exact words, can you look down at your Bibles at the very first word of verse 15? Someone tell me what's the first word in all the translations or all that I checked. If. Right there, that's the first point of the message. It's a judgment. The second point is love. It's the verb. And the third point is keep. Perhaps your Bible says obey. Let's follow that today with this point, with this heading or this theme. The only rule by which to judge love for Jesus is obedience to him. That's the whole message Now, everything I say for the next 45 minutes is going to explain that. The only rule by which to judge love for Jesus is obedience. Don't judge it by baptism. Don't judge it by church. Don't judge it by, I go to the mosque. I'm a Hindu. I'm a Buddhist. Don't judge it by any of these things. Don't judge it by, well, I'm a pastor. Well, I've done miracles. Well, I grew up in the church. Well, I was baptized. I was baptized twice. I don't judge it by those things. The only rule that our Lord Jesus gives is obedience to him. That is the only rule or standard or criterion or judgment by which to judge your love for Christ is obedience. Let's see these here. Notice obedience. Jesus offers a test. Do you see that first word, the word if? If. What does if mean? It means maybe, maybe not. And it comes again. Look down at verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them. Oh, so you have to have the commandments and keep them. If you do that, then what in verse 21? Look at verse 21. If you have them, if you keep them, then you love. Oh, but we see the word if explicitly in verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, if a man love me he will do what do you see that in verse 23 if he loves me he before the word keep and between the word he what's that little english word will it's the future if you really love then you will obey now this is a judgment this is a criterion or a standard a way to test it's a test Offered to each of us, friends, tests are instruments of judgment. Your children write tests at school so that you can judge if they're worthy to advance. Tests are tools by which we determine and discern what's really happening. And Jesus gives us a test. He says, you're talking about love. You say that you love God, then pass my test. We all make judgments every day, don't we? If you saw someone driving on Munich street at 120 Ks per hour, first of all, you put it all over WhatsApp. Secondly, you'd be angry. Ha, ah, he could kill someone. Why would you say that? Because you have looked with your eyes and realized there's people, there's cars, you can't drive 120 here, right? We all make that judgment and have no difficulty. We all make judgments about what time to get up. We all make judgments about buying shoes. You walk in to buy a pair of shoes and the price tag says a thousand. And you pull out four one hundreds. And you say, hi, I'd like to give you this. And they say, I'm sorry, it's a thousand. you say, don't judge me. We judge people all the time and we are judged by people all the time. In fact, you can't live without making judgments. You have to judge if the person you're about to kiss is your wife or not. We make judgments all the time. You cannot live in a world without judgment. But for some reason, we are very testy, very sensitive. You can't judge me. Why? Immediately you're going to think, of words of our Lord Jesus that are very commonly quoted. Who wants to tell me what they are? Judge not. Say it louder. Judge not, lest you be judged. Judge not. Have you heard that verse before? Judge not, lest you be judged. Now, what's wonderful about people is that they only take the five words that apply to their situation to make them feel good. But those words actually come from what book of the Bible? Who, on, who on, the, on the south side knows what book of the Bible gives us those words, judge not, lest ye be judged? It's the book of Matthew. Well done. You want to give me the chapter? Shoot, just guess. 1 to 28. I thought, I thought you'd guess the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not, that you be not judged. Now, people love to quote that verse, but what they don't realize is it says this, judge not lest you be judged. For with the judgment that you judge, you will be judged. And then he goes on two verses later to say, rather pull out the log from your own eye and then you will see clearly to judge your brother. Oh, Jesus doesn't say don't judge. He says, judge yourself first and then go judge. You ought to judge in a godly, Christian, loving, reflective, patient, thoughtful, biblical, kind. Any other words we should put on it? In a biblical way. But we must judge. Who's got a little girl? And she turns 23 and says, mommy, daddy, I love him and want to marry him. But you look and and find out the guy has no job. He can't speak clearly. He doesn't respect you. And you say, no, no, sweetheart. We got to talk about this. And she says, don't judge him. And you say, no, I've lived longer than you. I know how things go. And she says, but the Bible says judge not and you say, ha, ah, but I've been going to Grace Bible Church and I'm learning the Bible. And if you just read three verses later, sweetheart, you'll see that it says pull the log out first and then judge. I'm pulling my log out and I'm judging this guy. He's not for you. <laughs> we, need, <laughs> we need to have biblical judgment and we cannot live without biblical judgment. But judging is very controversial for two reasons. The reason judging is controversial is two. There's two great reasons it's controversial. Number one, because people always do it badly. Did you know that the pinnacle of maturity for a rational being, not a dog or a cow, but a pinnacle of maturity for a rational being is when he has learned to make judgments well. Most of us are immature, so we make foolish and backward judgments and we're hasty. We look and we say, oh yeah, yeah. We judge according to appearances without delving deeper to find out what really happened there. We're angry, we have presuppositions, we have biases, we have all this baggage and bitterness from the past. And so we look at him and say, oh, oh, I'm sure. And the finger comes out and the words start flowing like Victoria Falls. And before we know it, we've made a foolish, unbiblical, hasty judgment. And people say, I don't want that. And then we turn around and do that same thing to others. So there's two reasons why people don't like judgments. Number one, what's the first reason? Bad judgments, okay? So there's two reasons why. And the first one is many people make bad judgments. You know that's true because look back at your own life now. Meditate on yourself for a moment. How many bad judgments have you made? Your first marriage. The things you did when you were in high school. After you'd saved up 75000 you put it on that business and, oh, you don't even want to think about it again. The way you spoke to your mom and dad last time. The way you spoke to your wife yesterday. We make bad judgments all the time. And then we project ourselves onto others because you know what? Other people are basically like us. We're all basically the same. We don't like judgments because many people make bad judgments. And number two, we don't like judgments because we hate accepting our guilt. We can't stand it. We have as much interest in accepting our guilt as a cat has in taking a bath. We don't like Accepting guilt and we will do anything we can to get away from it. That's why we don't like judgments. Because when someone comes out and says, hey, what you did. What you're saying, I have to take that guilt. I have enough problems in my day. I don't have enough money. I have my wife doing this. Kids are doing that. I'm not taking more guilt from you. We hate accepting guilt. And so because of that, judgment is very difficult. But our Lord gives us these judgments anyway. In fact, now having said all of that, you've been listening so well. Let me give you, if you want to write these down, you can, just very quickly. Which I've learned means almost nothing from the pulpit. John 7 verse 24, Jesus Christ says, judge righteously. That's a command, it's in the imperative in the original Judge righteously, John seven verse twenty-four. It's a commandment from Jesus. Do not judge according to the appearances, but judge righteous judgment. John seven twenty-four. First Corinthians two fifteen. The spiritual man judges all things. First Corinthians two fifteen. So the next time someone shouts at you, Matthew seven, don't judge. We'll say first Corinthians two, judge everything. First Corinthians two fifteen the spiritual man judges everything first John four verse one, the next time someone says, "Oh you can 't say bad things about churches or pastors First John four verse one brothers, test the spirits to see if they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Did you hear that word? Many false prophets there 's a great group of them and How are you going to know if I am a true prophet or a false prophet? The Bible commands you to test me, to judge me, to try me. That's why I say open your Bible. Look at it. Take your pen. If you come here consistently, you'll know. Bring your Bible and a pen. If you don't have a Bible, we'll give you one because we want to help you judge me. Take your Bibles and make some biblical, thoughtful, mature judgments. And then go out there and live with biblical, thoughtful, mature judgments rather than sinful, backward, twisted, confused, second, uh, two second judgments that we're used to doing. No, the Bible wants us to make judgments. And when our judgments are reflections of God's judgments, that is when we are truly wise. All of our life should be training. All of our life should be education. Men, I'm sorry, boys, girls, look this way. You don't finish school at grade 12. In fact, if you get a real education, the whole point of education in your schooling is just this. You're supposed to be learning to love learning. That's really, if you don't learn that up till grade 12, you fail. I don't care what certificate you have. When our judgments reflect God's judgments in the Bible, that is when we are wise. It's really remarkable to me. That the Catholics have the Pope and the Magisterium, that's their church, to help them make judgments. And yet Catholics will sometimes say, oh, we can't judge. Hindus have the Bhagavad Gita to make judgments, and they do make judgments. I was evangelizing a Hindu this week who made judgments. And then when I attempted to make one back, she said, no, you know, you can't judge. I thought, very interesting, you just made two judgments on me. And when I tried to say one back, you won't allow it. Um, are you a Muslim? Well, what judgments does the Quran make? I'm really surprised when Muslims will say to me, no, no, you can't judge anyone. Only Allah judges. And my response is, well, didn't Allah give you a book? If he gave you a book, why can't you open the book and see the judgments that he gave you? Because God did give us a book. And I'm making my judgments off of what's written in this book. Now, why can't you do the same thing? Psalm 19, verse 9, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And this book is the repository of these judgments. Take these judgments, study these judgments, know these judgments so that you will be able to judge wisely. Psalm 119, 137, righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. So in the last few hours before he dies, Jesus gives a test. And it's a very simple test. But it is a test. So before we even look at love and keep, I want you to understand what we're dealing with. We are dealing with a judgment, a test. I want every one of you today, right now, to take this test. And to ask yourself, do I pass? I want you to make a judgment on this day, 23 May, 2021. I want you to judge yourself. And then fathers, you be a godly, wise father. And you look down at your little child with love. And you make a godly, biblical, patient Discerning judgment of your child. And husbands and wives talk together and say. What judgment is wise and biblical? Help me. And there needs to be careful communication. So that we can make godly and biblical judgments. Why is that so? Because of this one statistic that should not leave our minds. Here it is. 80% of South Africa calls itself Christian. 80%, 80%, that's 4 out of 5. Do you believe that? 4 out of 5 people are Christians. When the AIDS rate is growing, 4 out of 5 are Christians. When Joburg was the murder capital of the world until it was just edged out by Cape Town. Really, it's, it's 80% Christian. But Christianity apparently changes nothing. It doesn't change drinking habits. It doesn't change divorce. It doesn't change change anything. There's still witchcraft in the rural areas. There's still racism and hatred in the towns. There's still lying and cheating in businesses. No one will let you go without a slip and the cash paid right there and you won't go without your slip because you know 50% chance that this thing I'm buying I'm probably going to have to return to the store because probably that guy's a crook. And you say, hi, how are you? But inside you're thinking, are you my enemy trying to steal from me? 80% of the country's Christian. No, no, no. They need to test themselves with this test. And I challenge you today and call on the authority of God right now. Solemnly testifying to you that God himself wants you to judge yourself according to this verse. Now, having said that, that's the first point. Judgment if. Do we pass? What's the test? Now let's go and look at the test. And it begins with love. All Jesus' disciples love him. Now, in this speech, John 13, Jesus speaks often about love. It's all through this this section. If you have pens, you can mark them in your Bible. Please don't mark in the Bibles that are not yours, though. But if you want it, you can just tick that card and let me know. But don't mark it until it's yours. But in John chapter 14, in verse, oh, I'm sorry, it starts in chapter 13, verse 1, verse 23, verse 34, 35, chapter 14. In fact, it's 37 times in this last night, our Lord mentions love. 37 times. He mentions That there is love. And what's very interesting is that the love is going in three directions. Between three parties. Can anyone guess the parties who are loving in the upper room discourse? That is John 13 to 17. Can anyone guess where it is that the love is is flowing between these parties? Give me one of the parties. Jesus. Jesus, the son of God. Give me another one. The disciples, the Christians, the sheep, the believers. And the other is the Father. There's three of them. You would think it'd be the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is not referred to as loving in this passage. What it says actually is that there's this triangle the Son, the Father, and His people. And between the Son and the people, there is love going back and forth. Look at verse 21. The Son loves the Father. I'm sorry, the Son loves the people and the people love the Son. Look at verse 21. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So do you see in verse 21, the Christians are loving who? Jesus. Keep going in verse 21. And the one who loves me will be loved by who? So now the father's loving the people too. You have two sides of the triangle loving the people. And notice this in verse 21. And I will love him. That's the believer. Oh, so, so follow this, follow this if you can uh, visually. The son on this side, the father on this side, the people here in the middle, the son loves them, the father loves them, and also they love the son. But if you keep going in this passage, in chapter 14, yeah, in verse 21, the father loves the believers as well. What you'll see is remarkable is this. The son loves the father. The father loves the son. The son loves his people. The people love the son. But there's not one time that it's mentioned that the people love God. Not one time. Zero. Did you follow that? 37 times we have love. And there's love from the people to the son. From the son to the father. From the father to the son. And from the son to the to the people, and also from the Father to the people. The one branch that's missing is the people to the Father. Are you with me on this? It's really not complicated math, right? That is very simply this reason. When we love Jesus, we love God. And when we attempt to love God without loving His Son, we have not loved God. Which is one more reason why we should know that when people say, I am a Christian or I love God, if they don't testify of Christ, they're not converted. Whoa, that's a judgment. How many of you say you love God? Every hand will go up. Stand on the street corner and I give you 50 Rand to stand there for an hour. Every person you see on Songoji at the end of the month, just ask them, Do you love God? Do you love God? Do you love God? Stand in that corner and ask people, Do you love God? How many of those hundred people are going to say yes? Tell me. Say, say the answers. 100. 99. Almost everyone's going to say, I love God. Now you ask them, How do you know you love God? What percentage of them will say, Jesus, or anything having to do with Jesus? I've done that. Not necessarily stand on a street corner. But I've evangelized hundreds and thousands. Yesterday I was evangelizing people. That's my job is to evangelize. All of Wednesday I'm walking on the streets in Wamatatani or Bungani, evangelizing people. Asking them those questions. And do you know almost no one says Christ. And the very few people who say Christ. This is what they say. I received Jesus. Oh how nice of you. You received him. What did you receive about him? And then it's a total blank. Oh, I was baptized, I prayed. I have never, not once, zero in 20 years of being a pastor or 17 years of being a missionary in South Africa and I've spoken to thousands from so many languages I can't even remember them all now. I have not found one person on evangelism who has said, oh, Jesus died. It's the cross of Christ. You see, Jesus is the mediator between God and man. There's no reference to the people loving God because if you love the son, you do love God. How can I get into your hearts? There are some young men here. You could be saved if you would get this. You think of yourself as a Christian. You don't want to die and go to hell, but you will die and go to hell if you don't learn to love the son. It's not enough to go to church. Is there a Tani here, an Oma here? Is there a Kokwana sitting listening to me or maybe listening online? And you think, well, I'm a Christian. If you don't love Christ, you are not a Christian. That's the test. It's got to be love for the son. It's not enough to love God. It's got to be love for his son. He's the one who stands between sinners and God. Listen to this interesting quote. I had some Muslim friends who promised they were going to come. So I prepared a few of these, but you'll just have to enjoy these anyways. Islam teaches something very similar. Listen to this quote. It's from a Muslim scholar, Fazlur Rahman Ansari. In the book, Islam to the Modern Mind, this is a series of lectures given in the 1970s in Durban. And this is by a recognized, noted Muslim scholar, spoke to many thousands of people. And the book was given to me by a Muslim saying, this will be the best explanation of Islam. On page 78, he writes this quote, If you love the Holy Prophet, and by that he means Muhammad, if you love the Holy Prophet, you also love Almighty Allah at the same time. Did you catch that? You see, Islam is basically mimicking Christianity at that point. Christianity says, you can't get the God. He's too glorious. But God came to you. And if you love the one who came, you love the one who sent. That's the answer. Brothers and sisters, if you love the one... Who came, you love the one who sent. So that in the same way, when someone says, hey, I also have a religion, and in my religion, there's someone who stands. Listen to this one. The Catholic Church has the same teaching. The Catholic Church says the same thing. What did they say with this? They said, the Pope hears God, and God is glorious, and then hears all the little people, and there's no way we can reach God. So we have the Pope. What does Pope mean? It's Latin for father. Pope just means father. Oh, so there's the great, this is the Catholic church teaching. Okay, I'm just presenting their teaching. So there's God, and then there's men, and between men and God, how can you get there? Answer, they say, someone's got to stand between. Hinduism says the same thing. This week I was just evangelizing my Hindu friend, and she told me explicitly, Oh, you see, long ago, all the people were living, but then there was one man, Krishna, and Krishna took it on himself to slowly reach this state of enlightenment, and by becoming, coming to this state of enlightenment, he was standing between men and the great otherness, which is all things. If you can follow that, you're doing better than me, okay? I'm just telling you what she said. So there's all the people, and then there's Krishna now, who somehow stands between the people... And the great otherness, whatever that is. And then we've got Buddhism. Buddhism says the same thing. What was Buddhism? Except a rich prince. And at the birth of this prince, some 2,800 years ago. At the birth of this prince, there was a prophet who came in and prophesied over him and said, This man is going to set the people free. And so the parents of the prince were terrified of this and thought, Oh no, he's going to be a revolutionary. So they trapped the prince at home and said, Don't go out. But one day when the prince was in his 20s, he finished a party at night and he looked around and saw all of these women and men at his party and they were all drunk and passed out and he looked around at them with disgust and thought, is this all there is to life? Every weekend I party, I eat what I want and "Ah," he got so disgusted that he snuck out of the palace. this This is just the history of Buddhism, okay? I'm not... Telling you anything controversial yet. And he, he gets out of the palace, he goes around, and then he saw a poor beggar. When he saw the poor beggar, he thought to himself, how can this be? This poor beggar's suffering. Those rich people are passed out from intoxication. This can't be. I can't fathom this. So this guy decided to give away everything he had. This is where the history goes. I'm not, I'm not vouching for it. I'm just saying this is what's written in the books. So this guy went, gave away all of his money, all of his things, and he said, you know what I'm going to do? I am gonna be, i gonna be like that poor guy. So he tried to be like the poor guy. And he said, by doing that, he became the Buddha. Have you ever seen the statues of the Buddha? Buddhists aren't common here, but there are some. I've met several Chinese and tried to talk to them, but unfortunately the English is very difficult. But they knew enough to say, yes, I Buddha, I Buddha. And you can see their statues. Have you seen the statue? The man's got his hand out like this, and it's a heavy man, he's kind of sitting sideways. Because this man supposedly reached the place between men and the great otherness, which, in their idea, is some version of God. This this in, uh, um, um, uh, the words escaping me now. No, the final stage of Buddhism, Nirvana, this kind of heaven paradise. So, somehow, to reach this impersonal heaven paradise, you've got to have who standing between the people in heaven? What's the name? Buddha, you got to have the Buddha, the teacher. Hinduism has to have the yogi, the guru, and that yogi guru started with Krishna, and now it can be this guy, or this guy, or this guy. But there's got to be someone who stands between the people and the higher. The Pope, you've got the Catholic Church, and you've got the Pope standing here. Islam's going to have this, and it's going to have Muhammad saying, You, as I just quoted here a moment ago, if you love the holy prophet, you also love Almighty Allah at the same time. So, What we've got is all the world recognizes there's God up here, something that we conceive of as God, and down here's all the people. How could those two be brought together? Everyone's got their view on it. But what Jesus said was remarkable because he said this, if you want to love God, you can't. He's too far off. He's too great. He's too glorious. You're going to have to, in chapter 14, verse 21 that we just read, he said, you're going to actually have to love me if you want to get to him. Imagine what a man would look like if he said that. What if I said that to you? You would know I were insane or I was a megalomaniac. What would a man like you with ears and eyes and nose and he says, he says, look at me. If you love me, that's enough. You've loved God. But Jesus says that. Those are the claims. And that's the love that he promised. This love must be directed to him as the one who stands between God and man. Well, Francis Gamba in Italy, 1554. He was one of those Christians in Italy that the Catholic Church hated and tried to kill. If you are a Catholic, I just want you to know we love you. We're glad you're here. But this is just history. Starting in about 1150, for the next 500 years, there was an institution called the Inquisition. Inquisition means questioning. And in the Inquisition, the Catholic Church authorized people to go all through Europe. They wanted to go into Turkey, but Islam was too strong. It says, you're not coming in here with your silly questions. So all through, they were going with their questions saying, do you believe in the Pope? And if someone said no, then they would be tortured. Francis Gombel was one of those men in 1554 in Northern Italy. He was taken, and though he was a poor farmer, this man was threatened with being burnt at the stake. But before they would burn someone, this is what they would do repeatedly. And by the way, we're reading the book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And if you want to read that book, on almost every page it's a story of a Christian being burnt or killed or persecuted in some way or another, mostly by the Catholic Church, the Catholic religion. Now, I say that to say this. Francis Gamba was offered the chance. If you if you hey, you just do this, we'll let you go. He said no. No, 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 please, just just say you like the Pope, we'll let you go. So the morning of his execution, he was tied to the stake. And they came one last time to him and said, here's your last chance. You see the fire. There's all the hay at your feet. You're tied to the stake. One last chance. Francis Gamba said these words in 1554. Quote, my mind is so full of the real merits and goodness of Christ. Did you hear that? Catch that. My mind is so full of the merit and goodness of Christ that he could not deny his Lord. They put the fire to the hay. Brothers and sisters, if you would pass the test, you've got to have that kind of love. And that leads right into the third and final point this morning. We've got just about eight minutes. Let me just bring this out to you. It's right in our text. Look at chapter 14, verse 15. Look at chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, obey my commandments. That's what he says, John 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, you've got to obey me. Now, this is remarkable. There's a test. You know you love him if you obey him. Again, if I say that to you, you'd say I'm a megalomaniac. I'm a petty tyrant. I'm a dictator. What can I do? But this one stands up and says, if you love me, obey me. He doesn't say, obey Moses. You follow that? Moses was there with his 613 laws. Jesus doesn't say, obey Moses. He doesn't say, follow your tradition. He says, I'm coming to you with a new tradition. What tradition is that? Let me ask you: Does anyone here know where to find the laws of Jesus? Just give me a book, if you can. There's 66 books in the Bible, and one of those books lists the laws straight. Do, 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 do. Where would you want to find those? I, I know you. Put your hand down. And you too. I taught both of you. <laughs> North Side. Who knows? Oh, Amy knows for sure. Isaac, do you know where to get them? No, the laws of Christ. The laws of Christ. Laws of Christ. Laws of Christ, Corneille? Yeah, we're talking New Testament, New Testament. VIM, New Testament? Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. So, so, Okay, watch this. If you are really interested in judging yourself the way Jesus said, he's putting out a test here. He's saying, go judge yourself. If you're interested in judging yourself, go today to Matthew chapter 5. Chapter 6, chapter 7. It will take you about 40 minutes to read. But that's okay. You've got all afternoon. Go take that book and read those laws. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Because the very first verse it says, Jesus went up into a mountain and then he sat down. Not like me. He just kind of took a chair and then started talking to the people. And what's going to come in Matthews 5, 6, and 7 are the laws For his kingdom. And here at the end of his life. He says in chapter 14 verse 15. If you really think you love me. Obey me. Brothers and sisters. Our time is almost gone. So let me just tell you this. It breaks my heart. That the majority of this country. And this town. Thinks of themselves as right with God. They don't even know where to find the laws of Christ. How could you possibly say you're obeying it? My friends who are not religious tell me, ah, these people, this whole country is Christian. No, it's not. This country is not Christian. Try to find someone in this country who even knows what the laws of Christ are. And that's not, we're not even asking have they obeyed them. Do they even know what they are? Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Go read them. And it's not only there. He repeats them the whole way through his life. Almost everything you're going to hear him teaching comes, you can find it again in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So if you read, for example, in the Gospel of Luke, almost everything he says in Luke, you could go back to Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and see it taught there. He's just, for three years, he walks around teaching his laws that he'd already taught. But we don't know it because we don't read. But we still call ourselves Christians. Can I ask you to do something today? Stop it. Stop calling yourself a Christian if you don't even know where his laws are and what they are. Go read those laws and say, oh, God, help me. That was a point that I'm, my time's gone, so I'll just say, you can't do it because some of you may have said, like Martin Luther. You know Martin Luther? The German Protestant who started the Lutheran church back when the Catholics were killing the Christians. Luther tried to obey the laws of God, and what did he say after years of trying? He was 30 years old, and he said, I can't. He even said this, he wrote it, I feel like I hate God after years of trying to obey God because he said his laws are too big. He says, don't look at a woman with lust, but no one knows, but my eyes are looking. Jesus says, don't get angry. Matthew 5, verse 21. See, Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, what I told you about. Matthew 5 says, don't get angry. But Martin Luther said, I know outside I'm saying, hey man, hey, good to see you. But inside I'm I'm angry. Matthew 6 says, don't go to church or don't pray so that other people will see you. But Luther said, I know, I know what happens. I go up and I say, okay, let's begin in prayer. And I'm... I don't show off to people, but in my heart, I know it's there. And Luther said, I can't get around this. So amazingly, before Luther became a Christian, all the time he was a minister in the Catholic Church, before Luther became a Christian, he said, I feel like I hate God. And he wrote why? Because his laws are too hard. Do you feel like his laws are too hard? I hope, I hope you start to, because then you'll, you'll start to get the point. It's in the passage, but for time, I'm just cutting. You can go read the passage. John 14, where we were at. I will send you a helper. Brothers and sisters, I've been a Christian for 30 years. The only reason I could be a Christian from 1989 till today is that I've asked for the helper, and the helper has come. And you can't do it. You're too weak. I'm too weak. We're just dust. Go try it this week. But be honest with yourself. You be honest, because you're tricky, remember. You're going to judge others. You're going to judge him really hardly. And you're going to judge yourself very nicely, right? Go try to obey those laws this week. And just put a mark on a paper every time you have a bad thought. And you're going to see the paper filled with marks. But then you go right to the Holy Spirit and say, I need help. I can't do it. That's what it means to be born again. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord Jesus, come and help us. Help us to love you. Help us to think about you. Oh, our hearts are so weak. Lord, I am weak. Unless you hold me up, where will I be? Grant that these who have come to hear would think much of Christ and much of his word. In Jesus' name, amen.